You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff, and uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad, uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks, so they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes, uh, and these things are high quality, and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris eight at S A M O R R I S numeral eight at Sam Morris eight on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote. Uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. So my guests today on Uncommentary have written a book on Christian nonviolence. Now this is a stream of uh, theological belief, as you will hear uh, in the episode, that I was totally unfamiliar with until uh, just a few years ago. In other words, I did not grow up in a stream of theological reflection or church or denomination or anything like that where uh, Christian nonviolence or pacifism was discussed outside of uh, Martin Luther King's leadership in the civil rights movement, but nothing beyond that, like at a personal level or what that would mean for uh, anything outside of this limited, very limited use of nonviolence uh, from King. And so uh, come to find out there's lots of thought about Christian nonviolence, and I was unaware of that for the longest time. And so um Miles and David have written a book that's coming out soon. Uh, Miles Wernz is uh, on faculty at uh, Abilene Christian University, which is down in Texas, of course. He's also the head of the Baptist Studies Center there. He is the T.B. Maston Chair of Christian Ethics and Practical Theology at the Logsdon School of Theology there in uh, at ACU. Uh, also, David Kramer is the managing editor of the Institute of Mennonite Studies and is on faculty at the uh, AMBS, which is the Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. That's up in Indiana. Uh, he's uh, he's worked for Baker and for Brazos Press in uh, Grand Rapids, teaching pastor currently at Keller Park Church, which is in South Bend. He's written for a number of outlets, including Christian Century and Sojourners. And I'm super glad to have them talking about a subject that a lot of American Christians are unfamiliar with, especially those of us in the evangelical stream of things. Well, in a departure from the norm, I have two people on the podcast. It's not a total departure. Those of you who have been around for a while know I've uh, had a roundtable or two in the mix. But these are co-authors of a book that's coming up in February called A Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence. And so I'm really happy to have, um, De- um, I almost said, got your names uh, in exact reverse, uh, Miles Wernz and David Kramer with me today. Uh, Miles is here from Abilene, Texas, and David is here from somewhere in the hinterlands of Indiana that nobody really pays attention to unless there's a football game going on with Notre Dame. Uh, so Miles Wernz and David Kramer, welcome to Uncommentary. Well, thanks for having us. 
Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. So um, until your book becomes a New York Times bestseller, you guys might not be household names. Now, that's just around the corner. So yes. I'm obviously getting a jump on things a little bit. So, uh, Miles, I met you first on Twitter. Uh, so why don't you just give the little kind of 411 what you want people to know about you rather than what they have to know about you? Right. So I, uh, I'm i Associate Professor of Theology and Director of Baptist Studies here at Abilene Christian University, where I direct the Baptist Studies Center. I teach uh, in a, in a variety of things. I teach Christian ethics. Um, I teach Baptist history and Baptist theology and polity, systematic theology, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, we've been living here in Abilene, Texas for six years now. And my wife, uh, Sarah Martin Warrens, and I have two kids, Elliot and Arthur. So um, I got into this topic uh, a number of years ago. It was kind of a, it was kind of an under the radar interest that blew up into a dissertation topic. Um, so uh, my, my, my history with this particular topic is not one that I grew up with. Uh, it was not one of ecclesial heritage, but was one which came, uh, and David and I talk about this in the foreword of the book, and both of us were marked in our journey toward Christian nonviolence by the events of September 11th, 2001, in different kinds of ways. Um, so since that time, it has been a, a journey of searching out what it means to be a Christian in a violent world, and this book is part of that is part of that journey. Okay, uh, David Kramer and I have been friends for about nine minutes now, <laughs> and uh, he is at a Mennonite university, which I want you to explain a little bit about because people like me only know Mennonites as uh, those who run restaurants off sketchy exits on the interstate in Alabama. So um, I need you to do a little bit of explanation. Yeah, so uh, I work at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart, Indiana. Um, I'm actually the managing editor of what's called the Institute of Mennonite Studies, uh, which is the research and publishing wing of the seminary. But I also teach some courses uh, here. The main one I teach is Christian Attitudes to War, Peace, and Revolution, uh, which I've been doing a few years now. So that... um, really informed um, this project and uh, teaching out of my passion in that area. Um, I also pastor a church in South Bend, Keller Park Church. Um, So thinking about nonviolence more broadly than just in terms of international disputes and war, but also how that looks on the ground in in communities, um, domestic situations like that. So um, as Miles said, um, we were both impacted, as as many of us were, by the events of 9-11. When that happened, I was a freshman in college um, here in northern Indiana at an evangelical college, and I was rearing to go to, you know, uh, fight back against whoever it was that attacked us. I didn't know who it was, but I was rearing to go. Um, And so that was kind of my orientation as an evangelical in the early 2000s. And then through some encounters with different people and some uh, reading of what turned out to be Anabaptist theology, I started to have some second thoughts on that. And um, over the course of that decade, the 2000 aughts, came to identify more and more with the tradition of Christian nonviolence, um, 
even though at the time I think I had a fairly narrow understanding of what that tradition was. Mm-hmm. So uh, to bring our biographies together, Miles and I uh, met, I think it was 2011 when I began. Something like that, yeah. I began a um, doctoral program at Baylor University, moved my wife and our one child, and our second one was on the way um, down to Waco, Texas, in the middle of the summer of that year, which is the worst time to move to Waco, Texas. Um, But uh, Miles and I were both uh, working on um, the scholarship of John Howard Yoder, who taught here at AMBS uh, for a few decades, as well as at Notre Dame, and at the time was kind of the go-to person for Christian nonviolence. And so Miles and I were both researching his uh, his work that was informing our own projects, our dissertations. Um, and then I think it was 2014, um, uh, Ruth Crawl wrote an in-depth uh, study of basically John Howard Yoder's a uh, couple decades of abuse, of sexual abuse of a variety of people. Ruth Crawl was a professor at Goshen College, which is just a town over from AMBS. Um, and some other survivors and advocates started to amplify this story. It had been kind of a not so well kept secret, but people sort of minimized it for mm-hmm. a long time and said there was an internal process among Mennonites, and they did their disciplinary thing, and and it's done, and Yoder's dead, so we can move on. Um, but what hadn't really been fully appreciated was just the, the um, I think, depth of the harm and kind of how those shards went went far and wide and really impacted a lot of people's lives. So even as perhaps the disciplinary process may had run its course, um, it didn't really deal with all those aspects. And so that caused Miles and I to do a lot of reflection on what it meant to be so indebted to this person in our own kind of um, journey toward nonviolence, realizing that there was a history of violence there too. And so that led to some conversations that ultimately kind of informed this book project as well. So in the book, um, you guys take a uh, kind of a survey approach that's probably too general, but that is kind of you're you're dealing with different types or different um, expressions of Christian nonviolence. And so there's eight or nine chapters uh, you deal with Martin Luther King and others. Um, When you decided that it had to be bigger than Yoder, that you had to do something that I don't want to say downplayed him, but didn't centralize him as part of this story and part of this book. Um, how hard was it to find these other uh, streams of Christian nonviolence or Christian pacifism? And you can explain the difference in those, please. Um, uh, as you begin to research these things, how hard was it to find these other streams that you could say, okay, well, this is stream A, it differs from stream B here, which both of them differ from stream C here. Describe that process a little bit, Miles. Well, this all began, uh, the concept for the book as you, as David uh, lays out, was was began with this crisis of Yoder for multiple decades had been kind of the go to person for thinking about Christian nonviolence, mm-hmm. and so with uh, the absence of Yoder, 
and with kind of this, he leaves this, he just left this like giant hole in uh, the literature. Um, and part of what happened over Yoder's, over the, the course of a couple of, of decades is that there were always folks that were writing on this and talking about this. And Yoder would make reference to other folks. At one point he wrote a book um, called Nevertheless, which deals with, I forget, David, how many varieties of Christian nonviolence it was. I think the second edition was like 29 or something. <laughs> something like that. It was a really ridiculous number. Um, and so the, the question really became, okay, so if people are still interested in Christian nonviolence, but we're recognizing that there's so many problems with appropriating Yoder's thought, like, where do we go now? Uh, so that's when, that's when David had what I thought was a great idea. And he wrote an article for uh, Sojourners that began, that began this book. David, you want, to, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it had the same title, Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence, and uh, wrote it kind of in conversation with the editorial team at Sojourners, which if you know anything about Sojourners history, um, Yoder was pretty influential on Jim Wallace and... I think he was a contributing editor back when they were the post-American and in the early years of Sojourners. So I think as with Miles and I, the editors at Sojourners were like, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. And so this uh, idea kind of arose in conversation with them. And I think it's, um, I like the way you frame the question, Marty, talking about streams, because we were really intentional about not creating a new typology because often with a typology, you have really sharp distinctions between different types, and that often feels pretty artificial. And what we wanted to do with this book is say, these are streams, they, they merge and diverge in all kinds of ways, there's all kinds of overlap. And so even as we do have these eight different streams that, that we can talk about of, of nonviolence or one we refer to as anti-violence, which we can talk about kind of the distinctions of terminology in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't want to flatten any one figure and say, oh, because Howard, Stanley Hauerwas is nonviolence of Christian virtue, he's never written about apocalyptic nonviolence or you know, nonviolence of Christian discipleship. Right. People, people are complex and, and come at these in all kinds of different ways. But what we we're trying to do is just sort of tease out the different underlying sort of theologics, if you will, of what motivates a different approach to nonviolence. And so identifying these eight streams, um, making some of the distinctions and determining who might fit in a different stream, that took some conversation and some work. Mm-hmm. But really, it, it, um, it, it seemed like an opportunity more than a problem. It yeah. was like, there are so many voices out there that, as Miles said, have been overlooked by many, um, certainly not by all, but by many. And so let's bring those to the fore and let them shine. And that's what we try to do in the book. So let's um, let's put a couple of definitions in play, because I am from a uh, theological heritage in the United States that most definitely did not consider nonviolence as options. Um Pacifism would have been looked at as some kind of weird weakness or lack of love for your country. Um, in fact, I had a one of the early conversations that I had with someone who held what I would term 
the extreme view. And I'm using that word because that's how I think about it. Um, and of course, when we were talking about it, I asked him the most extreme question I could think of, which was if someone broke into your home and was brutalizing your wife and kids, you know, are you going to try to remove them or stop them? Or are you just going to throw a chick track at them and, and hope they get saved? I think that's exactly how I phrased the question to him. But in my in my tradition, which is Southern Baptist, there's just no there was never in my in my growing up a category for anything other than self-defense if needed, as needed, and however needed. And that then extrapolated out to your country. Um, so give us a little bit of a def- def- definitions here that people can understand, because I do think that a lot of people that listen are going to be kind of where I was. Uh, they're going to have one category that nonviolence and pacifism is all going to be, you don't go to war. And that's really going to be it. And I think it's broader than that. So if you guys could set some definitions and then kind of talk about um, what you think about my hyperbolic uh, questions and answers to my friend. So part of the problem, I think, and this was part of the occasion. So after David, just to kind of round out like where this book came from, after David wrote this article, I had just gotten done uh, being on a couple of panels that were doing the uh sometimes you see these like just war versus pacifism kinds right. of discussions mm-hmm. and just got, I was absolutely flummoxed by the ways in which I, I knew all of the nuances and was able to be conversant in all of the distinctions that just war would talk about, but basically anything that uh, they all assumed that nonviolence kind of consisted of one thing. And that was John right. Howard Yoder. Um, and so that frustration was part of what, uh, what led me to approach David about expanding his article into into this book. So, when we're thinking about distinctions, um, distinctions here, the couple of terminological things, and David, maybe you want to, if you want to add to add to this, uh, pacifism, as I as I usually use it, refers to the questions of international conflict. Uh, so that's where you get in. I mean, when you're framing it, just war versus pacifism, mm-hmm. these usually refer to two ways of dealing with uh, or two extreme kind of typologic typologies of dealing with uh, international conflict. But nonviolence, and this is part of what we do with the book, gets much more broad than that. Mm-hmm. It deals not just with questions of international conflict, but just basic questions of uh, the uses of violence, not not just in war, but in everyday life. Um, part of the issue, I think, is the ways in which uh, Christian nonviolence has all has become has become synonymous with a. It's become synonymous with withdrawal, mm. right? When we think you think you think Christian nonviolence, you think just doing nothing, mm-hmm. pulling away, uh, sequestering yourself in some place that could possibly be free of the violence of the world, or something like that. But that's not really true of what uh, most writers within Christian nonviolence want to try to do. Um, so part of part of the logic of the book then is is showing the ways in which that's a much more complicated picture. You have some proponents uh, who are thinking about not just uh, not just abjuring from international conflict, but they're thinking about addressing the, the sources of conflict. And they're wanting to, to do that in a variety of ways. You have folks that 
Um, you have some figures in the book that are much more comfortable with, say, uh, something like the destruction of those things which are causing conflict. So, say, uh, in, the, in, the, in the chapter that deals with apocalyptic nonviolence, you have a couple of figures that would advocate not for the harming of human life, but definitely would be in favor of destroying, say, uh, nuclear weapons or... Um, during the Vietnam War, you had a bunch. Of, you had several folks that would go around and break into draft offices and destroy, like the machinery that was used in um, in the draft. So it gets it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly once you move away from the stereotype of nonviolence equals withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Nonviolence, as I take it, is much more interested in fostering peace and creating peace, but doing so in a way which does not seek to uh, does not to seek to destroy human life in the process. And you got somebody like Desmond Doss who won the Medal of Honor as a pacifist in the war in World War II at Hacksaw sure. Ridge, rescuing however many seventy five or whatever that was uh, guys. And I, I have a memory; it may be wrong, but I have a memory at least in the movie that there was something that approximated violence on his behalf to save one of his friends at a particular moment in time. But he had endured a lot from his friends because he refused to hold a gun and, and those kinds of things. So it's a different type, I guess. Uh, David, I saw you scouring your. I was lucky I was going to the yard sale back there for a minute. What are you doing, man? Yeah. So um, here at the Institute of Mennonite Studies, I'm surrounded by my library and uh, just pulled a few books down because there there's a whole kind of genre of literature that's like. Um, an apologetic for pacifism or for nonviolence. And so one book I often reference is called A Faith Not Worth Fighting For, Addressing Commonly Asked Questions About Christian Nonviolence. This is a uh, coming up on 10 years old, but still really relevant. Um, and it's a collection of essays. And one of the essays by Amy Laura Hall and Kara Slade is specifically on the question of what would you do if someone were attacking a loved one? Mm. So there are people who will take those kind of, as you mentioned, hyperbolic questions and take them head on and take them seriously and mm-hmm. give an answer from a perspective of pacifism or nonviolence. Um, but I think Miles and I were clear going into this project that we're not really um, adding to that genre per se. This isn't an apologetic. Mm-hmm. It's more of a... Um, topology or just sort of describing the lay of the land. And so I think we would hope that if you are committed to just war, if you are committed to more of a Christian realist approach, or if you consider yourself a part of this tradition of Christian nonviolence, that there's be, there would be something here that could you could learn from, draw from. And so we're not trying to make an argument for Christian nonviolence, other than just to say, as Miles mentioned before, it's a lot more complicated than it often is given credit for. So we want to present it as an ongoing living tradition. Traditions themselves are complex creatures that involve a lot of internal disputes, dialogues, and that type of thing. And so if you come to this book thinking Christian nonviolence is a settled position, we hope that you'll come away from it just having a greater appreciation for what it is, whether you end up 
agreeing with it or not. So yeah, I think this is a this is the kind of book that most American evangelicals should read, even if they think they know what they already think about it. Because Agreed. I think, I mean, Miles, you're in the South. I'm in the South. There's an enormous amount of uh, nationalistic or patriotism that is combined. And I, I don't want to get into the whole Christian nationalism thing, but because of how we think about patriotism and because of how we think about the country, I mean, David even said, you know, he watched the towers fall and he was looking for where to basically where to register, you know. Uh, so there is that kind of if you love God, you love your country and you should be willing to fight for both. And the idea that there's an there are multiple strands, long standing streams. This is not like something that popped up in the seven, you know, in the 60s, long standing historical streams of thought in this that are really not known by a lot of American evangelicals. And this is the kind of book that we should read so that our thinking is challenged in these areas. So um, either one of you want to talk a little bit about maybe mention a few of the streams and the distinctions between them and and uh, how confusing it is when we try to just narrow it down to one or two. I can start and Miles can jump in at any time. But um, just uh, back to your original question about definitions, just to be clear that we are talking about Christian nonviolence. And so there are other forms of um, resistance or refusal to participate in war that we're not going to cover in this book. Mm-hmm. And so the... Um, Traditional, you know, I'm a pastor in the Mennonite church, and the traditional Mennonite view would have been called non-resistance, which is kind of what you were (laughs) caricaturing a little bit ago of like, we just don't fight back or resist in any way. It's sort of a a fairly um, literal approach to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount of Turn the Other Cheek and that type of thing. Um. Christian nonviolence is a development in the 20th century for the most part. We we trace out most of the book is dealing with 20th century or 21st century figures. And so there would be some traditional Amish or Mennonite communities that would actually, from the other direction, be a little uncomfortable with this tradition, which would be seen as more of a development away from non-resistance to a more activist approach. And mm-hmm. so all of the eight types we talk about would be more activist, if you will, than traditional non-resistance. Having said that, within within the eight types, we identified kind of four that seem to be a little bit more focused on um, interpersonal or um, political. Well, yeah, the four on more political and four on more kind of personal development. So, the first four chapters is nonviolence of Christian discipleship, nonviolence of Christian virtue, nonviolence of Christian mysticism, and apocalyptic nonviolence. And you can see all of these as being kind of a, um, a way of viewing nonviolence as part of what it means to um, encounter God, to grow in your faith, to grow in discipleship, different language, to grow in virtue, that type of thing. And then the the last four chapters, we talk about realist nonviolence, nonviolence as political practice, liberationist nonviolence, and then Christian antiviolence. And these are what Miles referred to as kind of the more political orientation that's talking about actually 
um, trying to change structures and systems or resist them in some way. But as we started teasing out some of these different streams, we saw that even with that kind of distinction, it, it often will break down because apocalyptic nonviolence is um, focusing on resisting death, uh, you know, capital D death as a mm-hmm. force or principality power, that type of language. When you start doing that in action, it can often appear very political. Mm-hmm. So when you're burning draft cards or when you're um, doing even a kind of symbolic act, like taking out a hammer and banging on some uh, uh, weapon of war, which different um Catholics had done quite dramatically um, during Vietnam era, um, those those communicate something politically. So we don't want to suggest that these first four streams don't have any political resonance. In fact, nonviolence of Christian discipleship, the one that's probably most directly associated with Mennonites and maybe with Yoder directly, um, we actually see precedent uh, from Andre Trachme during World War II, which if your listeners aren't familiar with him, you gotta you gotta check out the story of Andre and Magda Trachme and their community in France. But they were um, resisting the Nazis through offering uh, refuge to Jewish refugees, and so I think their small town. There's estimates of you know twenty five hundred to five thousand Jews that they saved. So. Is that not political? You know, it seems like that is a political act, even though the kind of motivating logic was to follow Jesus as mm-hmm. as they read the New Testament. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap um, in these chapters. So two in, to draw attention to two in particular. So on the one hand, you have chapter three is the nonviolence of Christian mysticism, which focuses on a, a figure that many of your listeners may not know, Howard Thurman. Uh, he, he was one of the figures that I got to know during this project that I have grown to love. Um, and then chapter six, nonviolence as a political practice. So what it, which has to do more with uh, maybe figures that we might be more familiar with someone like a Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. for example. Um, but the fun fact is that uh, Howard Thurman was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s teachers. Mm-hmm. So they spent a good bit of time together. He was King was a, a, a devotee of Thurman's writings. And so, but they took it in two very different directions that for King in particular, uh, nonviolence, and you see this in his letter to Birmingham in the Birmingham prison was not, was not only a political tactic, but it was also a deep spiritual discipline and mm-hmm. conviction. So that there's, we, we organized the book along those two axes kind of broadly, but there's a lot of overlap and it's hard to kind of differentiate these things out. And I think that's, I think that's good insofar as we don't want to see nonviolence as simply something that's, that's deployed tactically that has no roots in uh, the reality of who God is and what it means to be God's people in the world. So those two things have to be married together. Then I think about someone and and I, I can't recall his name, but he's, uh, in the movie, um, a quiet, a quiet life. That's not it. A hidden life, a hidden life. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he was in the military. Mm-hmm. And then when he found out the goal of this particular, in, in this case, it was obviously Hitler's military. Uh, but 
he wasn't against military service per se, but he became against the goal that this particular war was about, which was the annihilation of a particular people, not just some kind of political gain. Is that a particular stream or is he like super unique? Because when I think about it, I think that more Christians that do believe military service is acceptable would begin to tease out the goals of a particular war and would either suffer the consequences of not deploying or something like that, rather than this whole hog, well, I'm in the army now, so I've got to go do every single thing that I'm, you know, that we do, or I don't serve in the army at all. He seems to have been in the middle where he was trying to tease out the goal of a particular military. Is that one of the streams or no? Um, that would probably fall under more of a just war tradition, which is um, distinct from what we're doing here in the book. There would be some overlap, um, but just war has criteria for what you know wars are mm-hmm. or aren't just, and then you determine whether to participate based on those criteria. Now, the difficulty in many countries is they don't allow for selective right. conscientious. <laughs> Projection. Right. <laughs> so if you're part of a peace church and you can say, well, we don't do war at all, then then the government might say, okay, that's fine. But if you say, well, I'm Catholic or I'm Methodist or something, and mm-hmm. my church teaches just war, and this is not a just war, that will often get you into more trouble yeah, than just breed, being yeah. <laughs> pacifist. Uh, yeah. The closest tradition uh, that we talk about is realist nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And so the logic here is that we do live in a fallen world. Um, so it's really informed by like the the thought of Reinhold Niebuhr, a Christian realist. He himself wasn't pacifist. He spoke out adamantly against pacifism. Um, but many uh, people coming after him say, you know, um, it's true we live in a fallen world. We do have to make compromises, but war is just really bad (laughs) like it's not you know when you're weighing the dilemma the moral dilemmas war is kind of worse than many of the alternatives so that might be the closest in terms of kind of reasoning from an on-the-ground situation well zoom is telling me we have less than a minute so i want to thank miles warrants and david kramer the book is a field guide to christian nonviolence. should be is it this is baker yeah baker academic baker academic Academic. okay be out in february of 2022 I encourage you to check it out. There may be a giveaway involved with this book is a rumor that I'm hearing. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Miles and David, thanks, man. Y'all have a great Christmas. Yeah, you as well. Been great. Thanks, Marty, for having us on. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review and whichever podcatcher you listen to. Uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use. Uh, If you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the, uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, Uh, Anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Mm -hmm.